Well, good morning again. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be in verses 1 through 6 as we continue uh, to preach through 2 Corinthians. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ Toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Particularly within the context of 2 Corinthians, as Stephen has done such a great job for us preaching through so far, the one main point of this passage could be summarized like this. Paul's confidence before both God and man is found in the new covenant work of the Spirit of Christ. It's the main point of this passage. So I want to walk away today and someone asked you what was the main point of 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. It's that Paul's confidence before both God and man is found in the new covenant work of the Spirit of Christ. Paul has just finished a bit of a comparison in verse 17. Uh, Back up with me. Uh, to verse 17, he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, uh, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God inside of God, we speak in Christ. He's made this comparison between them and word peddlers. And so he starts off this section by asking two rhetorical questions. The first rhetorical question Are we beginning to commend ourselves critically again? It does not say, are we beginning to commend ourselves? It says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? What is this business of commendation? Is Paul anticipating a charge that he's patting himself on the back now? Is is Paul trying to rhetorically anticipate a charge of being boastful? Is that it or self-exalting? I don't think so. It doesn't appear so. Uh, Commendation was a very common and accepted practice of the time that has kind of died out, this bit of self-commendation. One New Testament scholar and historian puts it better than I could have ever paraphrased, so I decided just to read it. Self-commendation was a common form of recommendation in which a person committed himself to another with or without the aid of mutual connections with the intention of forming a reciprocal relationship based on trust is key. In self-commendation, the person does more than simply introduce himself. He entrusts himself to the other. The practice of commendation is therefore not a moral issue, but a social one. But a social one. Now this is fascinating because it means that what Paul is responding to is something that is probably much more serious than a charge that he is patting himself on the back, 
If Paul is having to commend himself again, meaning he has already done this to the folks and with the folks there at Corinth, if he is doing it again, then he is implicitly admitting that he may have done something to compromise or tarnish the relationship. Am I having to re-up and, and, and earn your trust again? Are we starting back there? Okay, am I having to do this process again? He's making clear that, listen, that's not what he's doing. This is, again, an apologetic for Paul's, the nature of Paul's apostolic ministry. And I would say more specifically, the boldness and authority with which he speaks as an apostle. This is not an apology. This is not a social apology for theological missteps. He is justifying why he can speak like he does as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So with a rhetorical question, are we beginning to commend ourselves to you again? Are we stepping back and having to reestablish trust because of missteps we've taken? No, that's not what's going on here. Or do we need, he goes on, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, the as some do, was that the people there? It's very likely some of the people there causing some of the problems that they're talking about and going after. This one we're more familiar with, though. This is uh, just the when you apply for a job, you need some references, right? And you might have someone write you a reference. Well, this would be a letter of recommendation that someone might carry and say, hi, you don't know me from Adam, but here's kind of about me. And here's a couple endorsements for some other people. Will you entrust yourself to me? I'm willing to entrust myself to you. We don't exactly do that anymore. But it was a common practice here. And the gist of the second rhetorical question is the same as the first. It's almost as saying, is, is that what we have? Have things gotten so bad? Have things broken down so much that what we need to do is I need outside testimony? Do I need to either re-entrust myself to you again? Or do I need other people to vouch for me? Is that where we've really gotten to? Church at Corinth. And Paul says with incredible wit, he, he uses this bit of the letter and he goes, you know what? As a matter of fact, we do have such a letter. We have one. It's you. You are the letter. He doesn't say they don't have a letter. He says we do have a letter. It's you. You are that letter. Verse two, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Notice the brilliance of this move. He uses the letter of recommendation language um, and then points to the church that he planted. So it's like he's asking, Listen, let me ask you a question. Is there a church of Jesus Christ in Corinth? The anticipated answer is yes. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me a follow-up question. How did it get there? How did that church get there? Did it pop out of, just kind of, just pop into being uncaused out of nothing? No. Oh, wait. Is that the church that, that, I, that I labored to, to start? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, you are my letter of recommendation. One New Testament scholar says it this way. They cannot question the legitimacy of Paul's ministry without simultaneously questioning the legitimacy of their own origins as a community. This is a brilliant little move that Paul makes. Looking back at the church he started and asking, and asking them these questions. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read 
by all. Stephen pointed out last week that the church of Corinth was on his heart constantly. In his travels, he would have spoken of them. He longed for them. They would have been part of his apostolic church planning resume. And thus, even though the letter that the church has written on his heart, it clearly has an external aspect to it. There's an external dimension in the folks at Corinth themselves, flesh and blood human beings who are Christians, who are part of the body of Christ. He could talk about them, but people could also look at them. Okay? They could look at them. And then Paul is going to do something that would earn him a C in preaching class. All right? Uh, and, th- and he was not preaching, so that's okay. But if you did this in preaching class, you would get a C. And that is, he is going to use the, some of the same terms and concepts, except he's going to switch up what he's talking about. Okay? You're not supposed to do that. You confuse people when you do that. But if you're not paying attention, you're going to get confused here because he's going to make a, a, a switch. He goes from telling them that they are the letter to talking about how they show they are the letter. Two different things. Not totally separated, separable, obviously, but they're two different things. Look at verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Okay, so we're talking about now something that is written on the Corinthians' heart. We switched it up. We're still talking about the writing. We're still talking about a letter. But this is now we're talking about something that's written on the Corinthians' heart just within the span of one verse. If you're not, if you're not careful, you'll end up confused. We find out four things. Four things about what is written. Okay? One, number one, it is, Paul says, from Christ. You, church at Corinth, are from Christ. You are not here because you are rallying around a social cause. You are not here because you are rallying around some political action. You are from Jesus Christ. You are supernatural. You are a letter from a cosmic king and a ruling savior, not just from a respected teacher. That's what he says. From Christ, you show that you are a letter from Christ. Second, delivered by us. So Christ is the ultimate source. But Paul was the instrumental cause in bringing the gospel to them and establishing them in the faith. In other words, Paul is the reason they arrived, so to speak. Paul is the reason they arrived, like my Amazon package yesterday. It was delivered and therefore it arrived. And Paul says we were the ones who who did this. From Christ delivered by us. And then here's where the big switch happens. Written with the Spirit and not ink. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. He's not talking about what's written on his heart as the Corinthian church. He's talking about what's written on their hearts. He's talking about what's written on their hearts. This is a very special kind of a letter here. The Spirit of the living God, not ink, has pinned his name and words on your hearts. That's what he's saying. You carry a divine inscription and deposit, Corinthians. That sets you apart. That's what Paul says. And finally, he takes his first step into what develops in the rest of the chapter as a very stark biblical theological contrast. He says, written on tablets of the heart, not stone. Now, if you're looking at this passage carefully, that might... That should signal something for two reasons. Number one, you think tablets of stone, you probably think very wisely about the Decalogue. That is to say, the Ten Commandments from the, from the Law of Moses. 
from the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. However, it gets to, it kind of gets referred to as both here in chapter 3 in one sense. But you might think it's odd because ink you don't usually write on stone tablets. All right? Look at that. Verse 3. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of God, and not on tablets of stone. It's like anyone, anyone ever gotten a letter written on with ink on stone? Nobody's ever gotten that kind of letter. What he's doing is he is intentionally introducing a biblical theological contrast and setting himself up. He is setting himself up for the next three verses and certainly the rest of the chapter. That is not a reach. I am not. That, that is a. That is that is very very clear. Okay, and you just read, read the rest of the chapter, and as Stephen preaches through it, that'll become even more clear. But this is the nature, the fourfold nature of what is written here as Paul lays it out. So here's the question then, and you always have to pause and ask these kind of questions. What's the relationship between these two things? We've got written, something written on Paul's heart, but when we got there's something written on the Corinthians' heart. What, how does the logic work? What's going on here? What are we supposed to make of it? Here's what, here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to put it up here and then read it twice. If it'll work here. The church at Corinth is Paul's letter of commendation written on his heart. Because the Spirit of God brought to the Corinthians by Paul has written on their hearts. That's what he's saying. The church at Corinth is Paul's letter of commendation. His letter of recommendation written on his heart. Because the Spirit of God brought to the Corinthians by Paul has written on their hearts. It is this amazing reality of the Spirit doing this kind of incredible work that grounds Paul's confidence before God. You see that. Such is, moving along to verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. What is such? Such here. This is the nature of our confidence. We have a confidence before God, he says. This is the nature of it that I've just laid out and I'm going to continue to talk about. We have a confidence toward God, but it's a confidence that actually comes from God. So we get a confidence that's from God, and therefore we have it as, oh my goodness, it about fell over. Uh, we have a confidence that is toward God after he makes us sufficient. Paul makes it very clear. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We're not getting this done on just grit and virtue. I'm not sufficient just because I'm a particular kind of person. I have particular kind of gifts. I've worked my way into this. My dedication is this and that. No, that's not what he says. He says that he has been made sufficient. He has been made sufficient for this particular task. He's been given a ministry of reconciliation. He's been given a ministry where power is magnified, completed, made perfect in weakness. Um, he has been given a ministry where God calls dry bones to life. Where the Spirit of God writes on people's heart. And that is what grounds Paul's confidence. Through Christ, toward God. That's how it works. And that is why he can be so bold and speak with such authority. He brings with him and is led by the heart writer. That's why. And no one else can say that. Something new is going on. So actually, if you back up to verse 16, 216, where he says, to one fragrance from death to death, the other from fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things? It's actually kind of a trick question. Because on one level, the answer is no one in and of themselves. 
But Paul gives the answer and says, we are. I am. You know why? Because I was made sufficient. I was made sufficient for it. So Shanti and I, before we moved, had a custom piece of furniture made, and it wasn't a very special piece of furniture. We just needed certain dimensions. We couldn't find it anywhere. And provided the builder is competent and you gave him the right instructions, by definition, it was designed for that, so it is sufficient for the task. God handpicked this man and gave him everything that he needed to serve in the way that God wanted him to serve. He was made sufficient for the task. And what task is that exactly? To be a minister of a new covenant. A new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Wait, is this, you mean like the one, the one that was promised? If the reference to the Old Testament wasn't clear with the, the tablets, I mean, this is explicit language of promise. The, the one where people get new hearts? Is that what you're saying? You're carrying this prompt. You're the, you, are the, uh, you are the minister who's on the vanguard, the cutting edge of bringing this new covenant. He's saying, yes, yes, that's me. That's exactly what I'm doing. That is exactly what I'm doing. Me and a few others. We've heard this from Jeremiah. We heard it in Ezekiel. That's why we had those scripture readings. The promises have come true and are coming true. Paul is the one who carries with him the gospel message that has the Spirit writing on people's hearts that grounds his confidence. The two, we get two contrasts there. The letter versus the Spirit. The letter versus Spirit. Not of the letter but of the Spirit, which presupposes that this other older covenant he's referring to was of the letter in some sense, but this new one of the Spirit, and that's important because of the second contrast between death and life. The letter kills, but the Spirit makes alive. And the question that commentators and scholars and Pauline experts have spent, uh, have spilled, excuse me, a ton of ink on is what is the letter exactly? What exactly is the letter? Does it just mean the law? Well, law, Paul says that the law is spiritual in Romans 7, 14. He says that it's good. Psalm 19, Psalm 119. I mean, the law, I mean, how is this? The, the, the language even gets more extreme in verse 7. I've dipped down into Stephen's next sermon and steal some text. Now the ministry of death. He calls it a ministry of death. What's going on here? Like, what exactly is the letter? How do we reconcile this high view of the law with something that's deadly? And the truth is, this is part of a larger discussion about Paul and his use of the law. But I want to give you one illustration to help you wrap your mind around it, both here and other Pauline letters uh, that follow the same theme. Um, I have a friend whose son is, uh, has an extreme dairy allergy. So much so that he carries an EpiPen around all the time. If he, get, if he uh, has anything more than, I guess, the tracest amount, and maybe even that, uh, he co could quite literally die. Well, I was thinking about this example, and I was thinking about how much I love milk. I love milk, whole milk. Don't give me that skim milk. Save the skim milk. Give me the whole milk, okay? Um, milk is even in the Scripture is, a is, is an imagery that is used in a nourishing way, something that is good. Milk is something that, that mothers feed their... Their babies, and yet, for this particular young man, 
it quite literally leads to death. Right? What's the problem? What's the problem with milk? Nothing's the problem with milk. There is something in that young man that is problematic. That's the problem. And when the two meet each other, it can't be handled without death. Of course, we have medical intervention, thankfully. But aside from an EpiPen in such cases, without death. And that's what I want to suggest is the letter. The letter does not merely refer to the law. It refers to its, it's shorthand for a, a little bit larger context. It is the law that requires obedience provided to people uh, who are not able to obey it and therefore stand under the condemnation pronounced by it. Okay, The letter aspect, the letter, the letter, uh, the, the, the letter of the law here that leads to death, that's the ministry of death, is not that the law is bad in and of itself, but it's that it's when you introduce it to someone who has a pre-existing heart condition, it, it kills. It kills. Nothing's wrong with the law. Something's wrong with us. That's why it's a ministry of death. I hope that illustration is helpful. It is how I understand Paul's uh, part of how Paul relates law and gospel. But here's the spirit. The other hand is the spirit. There's the contrast. The Spirit gives life. Why? Because it doesn't introduce law and require obedience. It introduces a new heart that desires obedience. Okay? It introduces a new heart that desires obedience. It doesn't introduce a new allergy, for example, to go back to the milk. It doesn't introduce a new allergy that's maybe a little easier to handle. No, it fixes the allergy problem and makes that person a milk lover. That's what it does. That's what the Spirit does. One theologian sums up the difference right here. This is so beautiful. He says, a vine does not produce grapes by acts of parliament. They are the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, including God's. But it is the fruit of that divine nature that God gives as the result of what He has done in and by Christ. Paul's confidence before both God and man is found in the new covenant work of the Spirit of Christ. And if that's the case, then we can ask ourselves, how do we live as letters? We have the Spirit of God. If we are part of the body of Christ, the Spirit has written on our hearts we are in a covenant where the letter does not kill, but the Spirit gives life. And we can ask questions like, what does this look like? I mean, this seems to be a pretty critical aspect of the new covenant here. It's a ministry where people are made alive and the letter does not kill anymore. What does this look like practically? What should we expect after reading things like Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and then passages like this? Let me sketch four things, at least, that I think are indicative of walking in step with the Spirit and walking in the life of the Spirit. The first is a, a desire. Do I have these on here? A desire for righteousness. It's a simple question. Um, do you have a desire for righteousness? In your practical decision-making, do you prize holiness over happiness when you can't have both? They're not mutually exclusive. 
But sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. I don't mean deep-seated joy. I just mean doing things that you don't want to do. You say, I want righteousness over ease. Or is your desire for righteousness kind of like my desire to plant some tomatoes and peppers? Like, I'll get to it when I get some other things sorted out and things settle down. But right now, I've got more practical things to attend to. I'll get to my righteousness. You know, I'll get to my righteousness later or something like that. Do you desire righteousness? Do you love righteousness? Do you want to be holy? Do you have a heart that wants to obey? And even when it doesn't, it says, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me a sinner. Part of the life-giving nature of, this, of the Spirit in the New Covenant is this desire for righteousness. Second, flowing from that desire is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit gives life, stands to reason. We see the fruit of the Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't give us life in some static uh, sense that doesn't produce anything. No, it's It's potent. Am I a letter that is read by anyone as identifiable as anything past a nice person like a lot of other unbelievers that you know? Fruit of niceness. You notice that didn't make the list. Not that you shouldn't be kind. But I just mean smiley, amiable. You don't have to be a Christian to be any of those things. Okay? You don't, you don't. I was just yesterday, I had the most pleasant discussion with the kindest people who made it very clear that they were not Christians. Do, 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 do people take fruit off of your tree occasionally and say, hmm, sweeter, it's getting sweeter, there's more of it. I see that you are, you are bearing fruit. That's a life-giving vine there that you've got. I've heard people say, man, it seems like it's always winter on your, on your farm there. What's going on? Yeah, we all have seasons, man. But this, this season of fruitlessness has been like uh, 10 years. What's going on? Life, excuse me, living vines produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit who writes on our hearts in the new covenant. Third, and I cheated on this one. I baked three things in, all right? Inextinguishable hope unwavering identity and incomparable worth. So uh, last couple, two, two nights ago, watched uh, the Toy Story movie with Will for the first time. It had been on the background before, but he was really paying attention to it. So the first time he had really watched it. And if you recall, there are two main characters, Buzz Lightyear, and then there's Woody, who's the cowboy, and Buzz Lightyear believes himself to be a space ranger when he is, in fact, a space ranger toy. Uh, and that annoys Woody, and Woody keeps trying to point it out to him, and there's this moment where where they're in this demented little kid's house. And anyways, Buzz Lightyear uh, sees something on the TV, and he sees a bunch of Buzz Lightyears, and he starts to wonder, well, maybe I'm not actually a space ranger. He goes out to the banister. There is a window. Most of you remember this scene, right? And he says, I'm going to demonstrate that I am, in fact, a space ranger. And he pops his wings out, and he jumps, and you're like, he's going to make it. And of course he doesn't. He starts to fall, and he lands on the ground, and his arm pops out, and it's, um, he, he ends up strapped to a rocket, of this kid, Woody is trapped under a crate and um, and he's despairing of life, toy life, I guess. Okay, He's sitting there saying, Andy's house, Sid's house, who cares? You know, and it, was a, it is the best illustration I've ever been handed out of a movie. Okay, Because he even has a name written on him. Remember? Andy, 
And, and, and so Woody is trying to talk him up. He says, oh, you're a cool toy. Like nothing. He's like, eh, I've got buttons. Okay, great. But then he says something that changes everything. Because initially, when he comes to terms with who he actually is and his actual identity, it's a huge disappointment. But then Woody says something. He says, um, you know, there is a boy over there who loves you. And it isn't because you're a space ranger. It's because you're a Buzz Lightyear action figure. And that's when he looks at the name written on him. And all of a sudden, he has more hope, more energy. He has a renewed sense of worth, a renewed sense of identity. And he gets up and then moves along. And the rest of the movie moves along. Okay? But there isn't a better picture here. Initially, this identity you have in Christ, it might not be what it's... It may not be what you think it was. You find out, oh, you're actually not this. You're this. You're this, you're going to be despised. The nations will hate you. You are not going to necessarily be particularly influential. You're not necessarily going to have an easy go. Welcome to the body of Christ. And you may initially go, oh, what's, where is the triumphant living? Where, how come I'm not crushing life? What's going on? But then if you listen and you get to know and you press into the one whose name is written on you, all of a sudden you, you find that there is a much deeper fulfillment than you ever thought possible. That's what Buzz Lightyear finds out. And that's what we find out in the pages of the New Testament as members of the new, the new covenant. Inextinguishable hope, unwavering identity that can't be changed by someone's Twitter post or looking across the fence on social media to seeing who looks better than you or who does it better than you, or who's smarter, better, smarter than you or knows the Bible better than you, all the rest, unwavering hope, unwavering identity, incomparable worth because of whose name is written on you and whose affection you have and who has made you sufficient, who has made you sufficient. Finally, spiritual growth, fourth life indicator here. Again, to dip down and to what will probably be Stephen's text at some point. 2 Corinthians 3, same chapter, the last verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Christian maturation is from glory to glory. And I love, there's a, there's a bunch of different translations here. I do think ESV gets it right. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We, as we behold, we become. As we behold, we become. And so the question is this. Spiritual growth is expected in the Christian life. If the Spirit gives life, you might think that anything that gives life, you would expect it to grow. It's not just doesn't say an embryonic or seed or kernel form, whatever kind of life it is, there's growth. So the question again, talking about life in the spirit and the new covenant, what is your trajectory? What's your trajectory personally? Are you growing? Would your spouse say that? Would your friends say that? Are you growing? Are you growing up? Are you maturing at all? Or are you stuck in Neverland? Maybe, maybe you're a mature Christian, but you found yourself coasting on a body of good work over decades. I'm a mature believer, you know? I, I, I've been a believer for a long time. Your trajectory looks like this. 
And then you got to 10,000 feet or whatever the case may be, whatever their non-arbitrary number is, and you just kind of coast based on a good body of work way back here. You're mailing it in till you get to heaven, just kind of doing the same. What would it even look like practically for you to see growth in the next year or two? Practically, concretely. And I don't mean, well, just deeper love for Jesus. Understood. You've been doing that for a long time. What would that look like? What would it look like if you're already mature to continue to grow in any measurable, identifiable, whatever sense? And I'm not saying go put write down a bunch of numbers and make arbitrary goals. But just ask yourself, have you gotten used to being at a certain place so much so that you just find yourself sitting there, even if you've had a really good body of work behind you. And most people's Christian life, I would say, has places where their trajectory is like this, and then sometimes where it's like this, where the growth is steep and obvious, and you look in on someone's life saying, wow, they're really growing quickly in the Lord, and other times it's like this, and then maybe when it's sad, it's like, mayday, mayday, like pull back up, right? And so positive trajectory. Are you growing? I'm not asking if you're growing like this. I'm just, but are you growing? Your line could look like this. But is it positive? Are you continuing to grow? Paul's confidence before both God and man is found in the new covenant work of the Spirit of Christ. And because the Spirit has written on our hearts, our confidence can be found there as well if we will look and we'll embrace those things. Let's pray. God, we need help to understand who we are and what that means for us. Help us grasp our immeasurable worth. Thank you for this new covenant where the Spirit has written on our hearts and has called us out of darkness. We pray that we would live in that power and that grace.